I need that this morning, okay? Because um, this morning, and I'm not sure for how long, we're embarking on a journey through the book of the Revelation. This series is a departure a bit from, from the norm, from what I, I normally do. Um, I'm putting on my teacher's hat, okay? Not a preacher's hat, but a teacher's hat. I work really hard at preaching, but my giftedness is in the area of teaching. So while I've been working really hard at this study, uh, I felt all the preparation time I've been putting in over the past month or so, this sense of God saying, you were made for this. This is what I made you for. When we were singing that song, Show Me Your Glory, I just felt like the Lord kept dropping into my heart. Kent, the best way you show my glory to other people is when you teach my word. So that, that's my hope in this. It really, really is. And, and yet, I'll be honest with you, even saying that, you know, I was wired by God to teach his word. I had a moment of panic and have regular moments of panic over this topic. I mean, what, what I do, what I love to do is to explain and clarify the word of God. Yeah, good luck with that. Explain and clarify the book of the Revelation? Am I kidding? So I just, I want to go on record on the front end of this, okay? You know, in my moments of what was I thinking, I wasn't. Meaning, meaning that I am fairly confident that God dropped this into my heart and God wants this. It's not some big ambitious thing that I decided to tackle, okay? I think this study is what's on God's agenda for us. As a church, I'm just trying to be obedient. Okay. Now, as we go through this book, I don't want this to be a disclaimer, but I want to be clear on the front end. There's going to be a lot of, now here are the options as to what that particular thing means. Okay. You need to understand there are much greater minds, much better scholars than I will ever even dream of being who can't agree on what this book means. Okay, so let's be clear on the front end. I'm not standing here saying this is the authoritative word. I know, I know, I know all those other people who disagree are wrong. I would never do that. I'm going to tell you what I think. I hope to couch it in those kind of words. Now, this is what I think. Um, And I've also discovered about you that you have opinions also. (laughs) Sometimes very strong ones, okay? So, if you don't agree with what I say, let's agree to disagree. If you can't get over that hurdle, send all of your emails to the main office and direct them to either Rob, Brian, Cheryl, Joshua, or Robin. And they will be happy to answer all your questions, okay? I'm going to do my very best to teach what this book means. Okay. And I, and I hope that my teaching blesses you and that it blesses you greatly, but I love this. Love it. Love it. Love it. Even if my teaching does not bless you, I love it that this book gives me an out. It does. It does. Look what it says. Let's, uh, let's, um, get the slides rolling here. Blessed is he who reads 
and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You know what that says to me? Even if this teaching stinks, you're still going to be blessed if you hear what it says and if you heed what it says. If you read it, you're going to be blessed. And I'm going to have a reader each week read the portion of Scripture that we're going to be covering. So, Mike, why don't you make your way up here just to save a little time. So, we are going to read it aloud. If you hear it, you're going to be blessed. If you heed it, if you take to heart what it says and try to live what it says. But also, be sure and bring your Bibles. Okay? In the study that I did, I found an ancient manuscript that said, Blessed is he or she who reads along. Well, I made that one up, okay? But I'm just shamelessly begging you. Bring your Bibles, all right? So I've asked Mike if he would read Revelation chapter 1. Would you stand, please, as we read together the Word of God? Thank you, Mike. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed. Won't it be great when we see him? Oh, man. Clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool. Oh, holy God. (laughs) It's too bad this word doesn't have any power, huh? That's, that's the word of God. That's the power of the word of God. I You're actually, okay. practiced, take his, take I actually practiced this a couple of times and never teared up once. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. And when it had, when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand to me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Somebody just say amen to that, right? (laughs) And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw... In my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Thanks, buddy. Don't you be sorry. Don't you be sorry. Wow. You can have a seat. I'm sorry. We stand for God's word, you sit for mine, okay? What is what does your Bible say at the title of the book? Just call them out. Let me hear them. Okay. Mine says the revelation of John, all in caps. And then in a subtitle, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's how this thing goes down. Okay. And I'm going to reread some of the things that Mike read for us. Starting at verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to, is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So here's the actual transmission, okay, of how this thing goes down. First of all, it's from God. Then God gives it to Jesus. Jesus then sends it by his angel to John, to the seven churches, and then implied in this to those who come. That's, that's who we are as a part of his future bond servants. Okay? Now this morning, I'm going to give you a little background information and context. Okay? Yes, we're going to get into the passage, but I think it's important that you understand some context of what we're going to be talking about. All right? So, I would encourage you also not only to bring your Bibles, but this would be a great series in which to bring some pad and paper to take some notes. It's important that we understand this book as best we can. So if you need to write all over your bulletin and swipe one from somebody who's not taking notes, God bless you. Just do it, okay? The author of this book is John, the son of Zebedee. The Gospels call him the son of Zebedee. He is the disciple who Jesus loved. John chapter 20 calls him that and 21 also. He's a part of the inner circle, that inner three, okay? Peter, James, and... John were the three disciples who seemed to be a little bit closer to Jesus, had a little more relationship. In the book of the Revelation, it doesn't call him the disciple who Jesus loved or the son of Zebedee. It only calls him John. Know why? Because one name's enough. Shaq. You men know who I'm talking about? You ladies too, good. Kobe. LeBron. Okay, that last one 
maybe not so much for me, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. You don't have to give a last name. John. Folks, the authorship of this book was never in dispute a hundred years after it was written. It was later on down the line that people started saying, well, I'm not sure, I wonder. It's also very, very clear that it was seen and received as being divinely inspired. That was never questioned when this book was first presented. No one went, what's he talking about? Well, who does he think he is? Is he kidding? Was he smoking something? It was clear that this was a message from God to Jesus and down through that line. See, those who dispute this book as being by him look at the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they say, well, you know, the, the language, the, the terminology, the wording is so different from one book to the other. I'm not sure it was him. He uses totally different language. Think about that for a minute, okay? If I'm writing you a book about football, and then I write you another book about baking, would the language and the words be similar? <laughs> They'd be so different, it would be unbelievable. But that would be no reason to say, oh, I think he wrote this one, but I don't think he wrote that one. Folks, he's covering a totally different kind of subject matter in this, okay? Just because he doesn't name himself by name in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as much with all these other descriptives doesn't mean it's not him. Those are very minor issues, very explainable. When was this book written? Most scholars agree it was written sometime between 80, 81, and 96. It was written during the persecution of a Roman emperor whose name was Domitian. Now, Domitian was one of three emperors who decided that they, or demanded really, that they be worshipped while they were still alive. Most other emperors were, you know, the, Rome was into emperor worship, but it wasn't while the emperor was alive. This guy wanted that. And if you didn't worship him, there would be a tremendous amount of physical or psychological persecution and pressure that you would, you, you would experience. So on the one hand, this book is talking about real time, what was going on at that time. But there's more to it than that that we'll get to. Some people argue for an earlier date. Because in chapter 11, it talks about the temple being destroyed. And history shows that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. So they think, well, it has to be before that because it's talking about something that we know when it happened. Personally, I believe that the temple mentioned in chapter 11 is a future temple for a future time. One of the reasons I believe that is there is plans underway in Israel now to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple. They are gathering the materials. It's kind of hush-hush and underground, but they're gathering the materials to rebuild that temple. So I I personally go for that later date. I think it was written sometime between 81 and 96 AD. Why was this book written? What's the theme of this book? What's the purpose of this book? Folks, the message is incredibly positive and hopeful. It is not negative. It's not pessimistic. And it is not to put fear in your heart. But Kent, there's all kinds of stuff in there about trials and tribulations and awful events that are foretold. Yes. And we will not sugarcoat that in any way, shape, or form. But we win. We win. This this historic, for all time, cosmic, dualistic battle between the kingdom of God and the forces of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, we win. 
The theme verse of this book is probably Revelation 17, 14 that says this, talking about the enemies of God. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Game over. We win. That's the message of this book, okay? And you always need to remember this. We lose sight of this sometimes in terms of the hierarchy that there is in God's order. It is God and God alone. And then under him, archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and others. Parallel to that, Satan. I don't know where you want to put the beast and the false prophet and the Antichrist. They're somewhere in there. But it's God, archangels, the enemy's counter. Angels, demons are their counter. God has no equal in this thing, okay? If you are one that thinks, oh, it's God and Satan, you need to reposition your players. It is God. Amen? Amen. And angels, archangels, and Satan. So that, that battle, that equal, that equality in battle is on a much lower level. It's God, first and foremost, and we win. Okay, so that's the main purpose. I think there are three sub-purposes to this book also. First of all is judgment. This book is clearly about judgment. These next couple scriptures aren't PowerPoints, but I want to read them for you. Revelations 14, 7, he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. John, in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 27, he Excuse me, and he gave him, God gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now you may sit here and go, wait, Pastor Ken, I remember reading in John chapter 3. I know verse 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus went on to say, I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world. That is his primary reason for coming. But in the great economy and plan of God, there is a day coming when God hands it back to Jesus and said, you judge those who would not receive what you came to do. So the son is keenly involved in judgment and judgment is a big part of what this book talks about. The second thing, though, is redemption. I love that. I'm really glad that's in there. Revelation 1.5. This letter is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and releases us, released us rather from our sins by his blood. This book is all about the redemption of God's people. Oh, and did I tell you that we win? We win. The third thing, it's about the establishment of the kingdom in totality. When Jesus came the first time, he declared that the kingdom of God was here. That will be finally, totally, completely fulfilled when he comes again. Revelation 1.6, he made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelations 5.10, you've been... Excuse me, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Folks, you need to get this. You were made from the beginning of time. You were made to win. You were made to win. You were made to reign. That's who the Bible says that you are. Well, Ken, I don't feel that way most of the time. Well, we better do something about our feelings, shouldn't we? To make sure that our feelings line up with the truth of God's inevitable outcome. If you are a child of God, you win.
Now look at somebody, not bragging, just fact. Say to them, you know, I'm a winner. Do that right now. I'm a winner. You're a winner. You see, the more I realize that, the more it makes me want to live the part now. So that I'm not surprised someday when this all comes down. We're called right now to live and act like we win. Amen? All right. I want to say something very quickly about the traditions of interpretation of this book. There are four primary ways that this book is interpreted by people, okay? Especially chapters 4 through 22. The first uh, way that this book has been interpreted is from a futurist standpoint. A futurist standpoint. In a nutshell, this is a view that believes that all the visions in Revelation relate to a period immediately preceding and then some of them following the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age. This futuristic approach to the book has enjoyed revival in the last hundred years or so, okay? Widely among evangelicals. So that's the futurist approach. Some have seen this from a, from a historist approach. That just means, as the word would imply, that this book centers on the history and its continuity as seen throughout the book. This view came up, and I'm not going to bore you with a lot of this kind of stuff, but it's important to know. Um, Joachim of Flores, that's a guy that lived back in the 1200s, okay? He was a monk who claimed that on Easter Sunday he received a revelation from God about the revelation. Okay, And he felt like in this scheme, he saw that this book was a prophecy of events from the time of the apostles, first century, up to his lifetime. So he thought everything in this book was about those 1,200 years. All right, One thing that he believed and had in common with many other people who adopted this view was that the talk about the Antichrist and Babylon were connected to Rome and to the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was a believer this way. You know, Luther had a lot of problems with the Catholic Church, all right? A lot of early reformers adopted this view. I personally think that was because they had an axe to grind, all right? This approach doesn't enjoy much favor today. There are very few people who read this book now and say, oh yeah, it was about uh, seven or 800 years ago and prior to that. The third view is called preterist or preterists, all right? According to this view, Revelation is to be seen uh, as to what happened during the time it was written and during John's life, okay? They believe this book was strictly to encourage the faithful who were living at that point in time, all right? Most liberal scholars today hold to that view. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with today. This was just for them back then to help them through a tough time under the emperor Domitian. And then the last one is an idealistic view, the idealist. Uh, They believe that this book is just poetic, it's all symbolic, and it's just spiritual in nature. So they spiritualize the book, all right? It doesn't predict any historical events. It's not talking about actual things. Although you can get a lot about the battle between good and evil when you read it. In general, they refuse to identify any of the images or any of the things mentioned as dealing with specific events in the future. Um, My opinion... By nature, apocalyptic literature, which is talking about hidden things, literature deals with the last days. By nature, that's what they do. And the end of the age. And the end of this life and the age to come. It does it with vision, revelation. uh, But it deals with real events in figurative language. 
And so I personally believe that that futurist, and maybe with a little historist mixed in there, is the way to read this book. You see, what I think happens is, and we don't, because we're so linear and because we're so logical oftentimes in our thinking, we don't give room for something I think John was doing as he wrote this book. I think he was doing it even unbeknownst to him. And I think a lot of the Old Testament prophets are the same way. It's something called prophetic telescoping. It's as if they look at history through a telescope and they see the top of mountain peaks. But it's all compressed together. And they don't have an ability to say, that thing I saw is talking about the year 90. And that next thing I saw is talking about the year 1340. And that next thing I saw is 1995. And the next one is 2022. They don't see it with that kind of logical sequence. But so things that they write have a fulfillment here and a fulfillment here and a fulfillment here. That's the beauty of the Word of God, is it not? It can be talking about all kinds of different things at the same time and have application to different events through the course of time. See, I think that John is describing actual future events. The bodily return of Christ is a real thing. The rapture of the church, a real thing. The thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, a real thing. The final judgment of Satan and all his cohorts and lost mankind... A real thing. The new heaven and the new earth? A real thing. Very good. Now, I also think parts of this book, though, are repeated through the course of history. Persecution and tribulation. Is that a one-time event? Or is that our story? That's our story. Satanic, demonic deception and oppression over the course of history. Antichrist types. I, part of my study and research uh, was looking at the video series the ladies did with Beth Moore on the Revelation. Man, is that a good series. She made a comment in that series, though, that I really liked with regards to Antichrist types, okay? She said, and I'm not sure where she got it, but she said that in her research, one of the commentators she looked at said that because Satan does not know when the end will be, that he, throughout history had to have at the ready an Antichrist figure, an Antichrist type. So that had Jesus come back in 1943, who would have been the Antichrist? See? And throughout history, those kind of people were always at the ready so that if the time was the end of time, there they are. I don't know who came up with that, but I think it's brilliant. I really do. And I think it shows this prophetic telescoping concept to us, okay? Here's a great summary statement about this book. Revelation may then be viewed, on the one hand, as an extended commentary on Paul's statement in Ephesians 6.12, which is, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. But on the other hand, it also reveals the final judgment upon evil and the consummation of God's kingdom in time and eternity. It's an already not yet tension that we live in. The kingdom's already here. The battle is all already going on. Jesus has won the ultimate victory, but it ain't over until it's over. Okay? Now, let's quickly talk about structure. 
how's this book structured? I mean, is there any rhyme or reason to this? I mean, you could think if you're reading something apocalyptic that it's like watching the Olympic Chinese ping pong match, uh, Olympic uh, ping pong match between the Chinese and the North Koreans. I mean, it's just back and forth and all over the place. And it's just, ha, how can we even follow this? The book has some structure to it, okay? It really does. Couple different ideas. This book has sevens in it all over the place. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion in God's economy. There are seven churches. We'll read and talk about the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls, the seven last things. All of those things are like little subject changers as you go along. But the one that intrigues me the most when I look at this book, how I kind of break it down, is that it's centered around four different visions that God gave the Apostle John. Four visions. And as you read, and I really hope that you are reading ahead in this book, that when you come on Sunday morning, you're not opening up where we are for the very first time and going, oh, wow, look at that. I hope you're reading ahead and I hope you're ahead of me. That wouldn't bother me at all. But when you read through the book, you'll find this little phrase in the spirit. And it's a key phrase that is telling us that John's had another vision. In chapter 1, verse 10, it talks about him being in the spirit on the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos. Mike read that for us this morning. That's where he had the vision of the Son of Man among the seven churches. You get down to chapter 4, he talks about being in the spirit and hearing a voice call him up to the throne room of heaven. And it's from up there that he gets the revelation about the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven signs and the seven bowls. Chapters 4 through 16. Later on in chapter 17, it says, I was in the spirit and I was carried away into the wilderness. When he's out in the wilderness, it's when he has the revelation about the harlot and about Babylon and about the beast and all that stuff. Okay. He's still in the spirit and the vision shifts a little bit. Some think he had more than four. He had five. I think context is pretty clear that he's still in the spirit, but the vision changes a little bit. He sees Jesus coming again as the king. He sees about the marriage supper of the lamb and the millennial reign of Christ when Satan is bound and the great white throne of judgment. And then finally, and this is the best news, at chapter 21, he's carried away in the spirit to a great high mountain where he sees the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Did I mention that we win? Even if you have to grit your teeth to get to chapter 21, grit your teeth because we win and the news is really good. But I also want you to know this. I don't think this book is about, oh, white knuckle it till we get to chapter 21. There is good news all along the way in this book. Okay. The message over and over and over again, even as we look at the tough stuff is we win. So the best way to understand this book, 21, 22 chapters but one revelation. Those chapters are put in there by man, okay? John didn't go, oh, chapter two. And he just dumped it out and we kind of went back in and broke it up. But I think the, the finest way to understand this book is, is to what's called to exegete the scripture. That means to go through it verse by verse and explain it as we go. Now, here's a rule of thumb that I'm going to use as we do this, all right? If the plain sense or the common sense interpretation makes sense, 
You don't need any other sense. All right? If it says something that's pretty plain and simple, we're not going to try and spiritualize it and make it mean something that it doesn't say. If the plain sense, if common sense makes sense, we don't need anything else on that, okay? And I'll give you examples of that as we go. But there are obviously going to be some spots where it couldn't mean that. And we'll look at that as we go also. All right. Ready to dig? I am. So a couple important points as we start. Back to verse number one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. It is very, very, very important from the beginning of this book that you realize. And again, John was inspired as he wrote this, okay? It was the Holy Spirit speaking through him to write these words. He clearly said that he is writing the things that must take place. That word is really important. It's the Greek word D-E-I. It's pronounced day. And it means... Of logical necessity, what is absolutely inevitable. It is going to be the inevitable result of this whole plan that somebody has. So the language is apocalyptic and it's hidden and it's mysterious in many ways. It's an unveiling, an uncovering of a mystery, a disclosure of something that's hidden. Here's what you have to get. Because he used that word must take place... It is God's plan 100% behind everything in this book. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It will, people, it will unfold exactly as God has planned it to unfold. As he has always had it planned to unfold. Why do you make such a big point of that, Kent? What's the big deal? How many of you find life to be tough sometimes? How many of you wish you weren't in the pickle that you're in sometimes? Hey, look around who didn't raise their hand. Go talk to them. Find out what their secret is, that they're not having any struggles, and rub their head for luck. Okay? Let me ask that again. How many of you are in a tough spot or have been in a tough spot in the past year? We all are. We need to remember that this is all unfolding according to the plan of God. It must take place this way. Why? Because God's mean? No, because he's sovereign. And because he's good. So from the get-go, this is what must take place. Well, God never asked me. I surely wouldn't have had that take place in my life. Newsflash. You're not God. Even the bad things, there's good reason for. All right? Now, I don't think it's all his perfect plan, but he works everything for good. That's who he is. So this stuff must take place, must take place shortly. That that's, doesn't mean soon in the sense of our understanding, like shortly, for crying out loud, what's he waiting for? The word shortly means without delay from the sense that nothing can thwart or hinder this plan. It's happening exactly on schedule. Why is it waiting so long? Because God's got something bigger in this whole thing than you and I understand with our little finite minds. Okay? I'm sorry. Okay? His perfect timing will fulfill his plan. And even in the midst of our arguments, this is what we have to remember. This is our motto, folks. This is our mantra. Life is hard, but God is good. Therefore, don't quit because we win. 
That's it. Yes, life is hard. And this book describes life that is hard. But God is good in the midst of all that. So don't quit. Why? Because we win. Okay? This book ends with this comment from Jesus, who is now the, the risen king. Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things, and that's Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. You know what your response and my response needs to be to that? It's right up there on the screen. What should be our response? Say it with me. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And some people say, because he said he's coming quickly, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, you've got to have the right attitude about that. Meaning, you can't, in saying that, say, this place sucks, I hate it. I hope all these lost people go to hell. I just want to get out of here. If that's what you mean by come quickly, Lord Jesus, you're going to have a talking to when you get up there, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Not God so hated the world he couldn't wait to get this mess over with. Those stupid people who didn't believe. That is never the heart of God. So even as we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, it can't be because this stinks and we don't care. But you also need to be able to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You can't have a heart that says, you know, Jesus, why don't you just hang on a little while? I'm not through having a good time and maybe later. We need to live ready, don't we? We need to live ready. Mike, I so appreciated your heart when you just, first time you broke down. That's what you were saying. I want to be ready. We need to be ready. So the key is, let God figure out when quickly is. Can you do that? Little control freaks that we all are. Let God figure out quickly and live ready. All right. Put that first verse back up. These things must take place shortly. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to John. Communicated, okay? Literally, that word means signified. The Greek word is semeno, which means a sign, a figurative representation of something. It's like a figure of speech. If I would say, Bud has thin skin, would you come over and feel how thick his skin is? Or would you know that means... He's really sensitive. He can't take criticism or he can't take a joke. Or it's, there's so much of that in this book. When it says certain things, we're not to take it literally, okay? Not to take it literally. God himself is saying to us, from him to Jesus through the angel to John, he is saying this revelation is very symbolic. You don't take it all literal. Real things, yes, but not taken literally. You read through this book and you find how many times John says like. Not because he hung around a valley girl. But like because I don't have words to describe. It's like this, but it's not quite that. But it's first time I went to Niagara Falls. I was overwhelmed by that thing. And if I had to describe it, it'd be it's like buckets and buckets of buckets of water being poured. Are there any buckets there pouring water at Niagara Falls? No. But I'm just speechless. I can't put into words what this thing is like. He does that all through this book. It's amazing, okay? It's to kind of help understand something that's beyond understanding. When we get to chapter 9, there's this description of a locust warrior. This thing is like a scorpion and kind of like a horse. And it has body armor and it looks a little like a woman. I think I met her one time. 
But it's, it's just beyond what we could ever imagine as really being literal. Okay? Now, continuing to jump in here. This book has a typical standard greeting and doxology, a typical expression of praise to God. It was the writing style of the day. It's a great writing style. Okay, let's put up uh, the next slide. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. That's a Hebrew and a Greek greeting. Greek first, grace, then Hebrew, peace. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood. He made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Next slide. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this letter was written literally to seven churches. Let's put the map up there. That's modern-day Turkey. And all of those cities are the ones that he writes to. They, they kind of follow either rivers or key roads, all right? But he wrote to literal places. That's where they were. That number seven, again, is a number of perfection and completion. So I think there's a dual purpose in writing chapters two and three of this book. Yeah, it's to actual churches, but I think it's also to a bigger, broader, universal church that exists over the history of time. These, as we look at these letters, these seven letters, you will find them to be incredibly wonderful ways to measure and analyze how we are doing in fulfilling the will of God. I wouldn't say to you, don't take them personally, because I think they're written personally. Each one of them has something to say to us. All right, as I said a minute ago, uh, next slide, please. John, to the seven churches, grace and peace, a typical New Testament greeting to the Hebrew and to the Greek. But I think it's odd when we look at that. It says, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's out of order, isn't it? You see it? Normally it says, who was, who is, and who is to come. Past, present, and future. But I think the reason why he did it that way was, again, first of all, to, to refute Gnosticism. That belief that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. So he starts again. He is, meaning he did come. He was. He was God from the beginning of time. And he is to come, which is the focal point of this book. He is coming again, you know. Do you know? Okay, he is. The seven spirits mentioned. I don't think those are angels. I think that's referring to a picture of the perfect Holy Spirit. The perfect Holy Spirit. I love, as we wrap this thing up this morning, I love the next two verses. How Jesus is described and how the description of what he has done for us is given to us. This is verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What an amazing description of the Lord Jesus. He is the faithful witness, folks. It's the same root word that is used for the word martyr 
Okay, And it means someone who, first of all, bore witness to the truth, but also who died for that truth. He was so committed to the truth he was bringing, he was willing to die for it. Are you that committed? If your answer is, I don't know, I hope so, I think that's a fair answer. Time will tell if that ever gets to be the case. But Jesus is the faithful witness. He says of himself in John 8, 18, I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me. And all through scripture, the spirit bears witness to this truth. He is the faithful witness. He's also called the firstborn of the dead. That doesn't just mean he was the first one that this happened to. It's, it's like the word prototype. Okay. The story doesn't stop with the death of Jesus, does it? It goes on to talk about The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same thing is true for us. The story does not end with our death, does it? No, it goes on to talk about with great length and great passion the life that we have in him. If we are in him, if we've placed our faith in him, we gain resurrection life. What a beautiful thing that is. And finally, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. When we get to chapter 19, you'll understand a little bit more about what that looks like. Just be patient, okay? It's an amazing picture of Christ as king. It's a little preview of coming attractions today I'm giving you. And then, this beautifully concise statement about us and what he's done for us. It says there, he loves us. Now, it's important to know that that word is in the present continual uh, tense. It is an active participle. What does that mean? What that means is it's an ongoing, continually unending love. He loves us and he will continue for all time to love us. Ain't that good news? Man. But then it says he released us from our sins. That's a past tense word. That means it's done. It's finished. When he died on that cross, he paid the price for all of your sins. Even the ones I commit tomorrow? Should you then go and commit sin tomorrow? No. It's just explaining the totality of the work that he's done for us. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. How? It says by his blood. By what he accomplished on the cross for us. It's a finished work. You know, sometimes I think we hold on to our chains. And those chains aren't as big or as bad or as strong as we think they are. But we have been duped into believing that we can't get free. Of the sin or the bondage or the shame or the condemnation or the defeatist attitude and mentality. Have have you ever studied how they keep an elephant tamed and from just breaking loose and running, running crazy? They put this little chain on it. And when it pulls resistance, they make sure it understands. And eventually an elephant can be kept in place by the tiniest little chain. That if it wanted to bust that thing, it could bust wide open, bust wide loose of that thing. That's what sin does to us many times. That's the message I think the devil gives to us. Now, I'm not calling anybody an elephant in a negative sense of the world. But, but we're elephants. We have the power and the strength and the victory. And this little chain that we let hold us sometimes doesn't really have the power to hold us. He made you to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He's already done it. You don't need to do any more to qualify for it except embrace it and live like it's the truth. Why should you do that? Because it is. Because we win. It is the truth, folks. And we win. We just need to receive that truth and to walk in it. Last thing I want to say. 
Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That little idea of behold, he's coming with the clouds is all over the New Testament. It's referenced in Matthew 16, Matthew 24, and Luke 21. But it is also a quotation from two different places in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, every week, I'm not going to read Old Testament references to what's written in the Revelation, but I want you to understand that. The second coming of Jesus was prophesied before the first coming ever happened. In this book, from cover to cover, it talks not only about the Messiah who is coming, it also clearly, from cover to cover, teaches about the Messiah who is coming again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. I don't literally think that means every person will mourn over him, but someone from every ethnic group or peoples from every ethnic group will mourn over him. But I'm here to tell you, I'm not gonna. Are you? You're gonna mourn that he comes again? Amen! Come, Lord Jesus! We're not going to be of those who mourn for him. I think this idea is taken from Philippians 2 verses 10 and 11 that says this. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen in two different ways. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer, when he comes again, you will bow your knee and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've put my faith in him. I I knew that he would come again for me. The mourners will be those who will bow the knee. Every knee will bow. But their knee will bow in a sense of, oh my God. I missed it. I refused. I disobeyed. I'm lost. I'm doomed. You see the difference in those two knees bowing? And yet every knee will bow. I love the song we sang this morning. Show me your glory. I'm not afraid. That should be your stance as a Christian. But I'm telling you, there are some people who ought to be afraid. They should be afraid. Because their lives aren't stacking up. We're going to stop there. I think it's a good place to close. Seven verses out of 393 verses. That means in 56 weeks, if we keep up this rapid pace, we, we're not going to take that long, okay? But I'm in no hurry. I felt all morning this morning. I usually get up at 4 o'clock to go over my notes and make sure I'm prepared. I woke up with a start at 3.30. So excited, I couldn't wait to get here today. And I felt like the Lord kept saying to me all morning, don't rush this. Don't hurry. Don't hurry. Don't hurry. 
So we're not going to hurry, okay? Now, if Jesus gets back before I'm done, how bad would that be? Huh? So we're not going to hurry. Don't you worry. Do you feel blessed today? I hope not by me, but I hope by the word of God. That, that's my heart in this. So let's, let's pray. Would you stand, please? And I, I want to um, encourage you with everything in me. If you're here today and uh, you're not a Christian, today is your day. I'm not one of those who threatens and says, Oh, he's coming back in 20 minutes and you better get right. We don't know when he's coming back, but whenever it is, you better be right. If you're a Christian here today and your life's not what it should be, This might be a good time for you to get that straight so that you can say amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. All right? So, Joshua leads us in this last song, and we've got some ministry team folks. If you'd make your way up right now to the front, if you want prayer, come and engage one of them. If you want to just be by yourself, why don't you go to a side rail, and that will indicate to us that I just need some personal time alone with God. That's fine also. Okay? But the Lord's here this morning, isn't he? And he wants to talk to you. He wants to meet you right where your heart is at. So when we're done with some ministry time, I'll pray and dismiss us. So, Father, we uh, desire you to continue to do a work in our hearts. uh, A work that helps us understand what this mystery is all about and how it unfolds. We ask you to to give us understanding and knowledge, but give us wisdom. Help us know how to properly apply what this mystery says. Lord, work in all of our hearts in such a way that we can say with great confidence, great assurance, great integrity. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, because we're ready. Help us have the right, proper attitude about this lost, dying world. Help us have the proper attitude that says, you decide when quickly is. We'll just live ready. Thank you again, Lord God, for the reminder that life is hard. And this book paints a picture of a life that's hard. But the overriding truth is that you're good, that we mustn't quit because we win. Thank you today for the victory that is ours in Jesus. In his name we pray this. Amen. Hey, I'm really looking forward to the next however many weeks. I think it's going to be a faith builder for us all. God bless you. Go in his peace today.